0: going to look at the word of the Lord today, so Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bible with you, if you don't have one with you, uh, there's Bibles all along the centre of the aisle, uh, please feel free to grab one of those, and it's our gift uh, at follow uh, to you. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read as we continue our study today. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And they sewed uh, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. <laughs> she, g- I'll let preach. <laughs> she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the one, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground uh, from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, church, it's uh, very easy as Christians to find ourselves in a bubble, to surround ourselves with people who we like, people who are like us, people that think like us, look like us, act like us, speak like us. But one of the things I love about Follow Baptist Church is that we're a church full of people that don't want to just stay in the bubble. We really want to step outside of the bubble and we want to uh, meet people in our local community. We want to have an impact on their lives and we want to make a difference in the world around us. But you know, it's not until you step out of the bubble, uh, like we did this Tuesday and Thursday night at Burke Park, that you realise the extent of brokenness in so many people's lives. There's so many people out there that are struggling. People with a lack of food, people with no place to live, people who are isolated, hurt lonely, sad, and lost. And even though the issues of the world are magnified in an environment like that, we actually don't have to look that far. We simply only have to look at our own lives to see that we are, in many ways, broken people, personal pain, broken relationships in our lives, tragedies, ill health, frustrations, and of course, the constant battle that we have with sin. We're broken people. And so the question is, how do we get to this point particularly on what we've talked about in the last few weeks in the book of Genesis. Uh, up until this part of the story, things are going incredibly well. Adam and Eve, the first humans living in the Garden of Eden, uh, living in literally what they what is called paradise. They have everything they need, everything they need to live, everything they need to enjoy life. They are flourishing in every sense of the word. I love that word, flourishing. They are flourishing in every single way. They have intimate and harmonious relationship with each other. They have unbroken relationship with God. And it's really a beautiful picture. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's a picture at many levels that we can't connect with. Because the truth is that every second that we've existed here on planet Earth, we have lived in a world that has been tainted and tarnished by the impacts of sin. And it affects our lives in really big ways, all the way down to the very smallest things in our lives. So much so, I don't think we even realize it because we've never known any different. And yet Adam and Eve were living in this kind of environment, unbroken relationship with God and with one another. And So how do we get here from where Adam and Eve were? Well today, in Genesis chapter 3, we come to a moment where we read about the fall of mankind. We come to a moment in history where sin first enters God's very good creation. And so every problem we see today on earth, every uh, bad news, news bulletin we see on the TV, every crime that's committed, every bad, uh, every struggle we have, every murder, every abuse, every act of terrorism, every evil thought, every bit of pain and suffering and injustice, it can all be traced back to this one moment in history that we're reading about today, the fall of mankind. A few years ago, I was a carpenter and I was working on a building site. And One day I was up on a ladder and I was trying to put a wall together and I was holding onto the stud, which is the vertical bit of timber and I was trying to nail um, through the top plate, which is the horizontal bit of timber, into the stud. And the problem was the stud had a twist in it. So I'm up on a ladder, and I'm twisting the stud around like that, and I had the nail gun in my left hand because all the talented people are left handed. And so I was holding the nail gun and and I shot the first nail into the top plate. It went through the top plate, it went into the stud. And then I twisted the stud to go to nail the second one in. But as I was doing that, I lost a bit of balance on the ladder and instead of nailing into the timber stud, I nailed right into the hand of the human stud. me, in case you were wondering. That's what Kim calls me. Um, Too much information I know on a Sunday morning but it wasn't a good experience. Up on this ladder, I was working with my dad at the time and I looked down and I said, dad, I think I need your help. And he said, oh, what's up? And he looked at me and he went, ah! And I didn't know whether he was gonna faint first or I was gonna faint first. Uh, but a three inch nail went through my hand here, uh, all the way down into my hand and all you could see was the top of the nail sticking out of the top of my hand. Now every doctor will tell you when you do something like that, never take it out. Always go to the doctor and get them to pull it out. My dad's not a doctor. He's a carpenter. And so he said, what do we do? I'll oh, come here. And he yanked it out. And in an act of incredible grace and mercy, he sent me off to the doctor to get a tetanus and then come back to work for the rest of the afternoon. Let me introduce you to one of your uh, freshly nominated elders. You didn't know that story before you nominated him, did you? I know what song is in your head right now. If I could turn back time. If I could find a way... I'd take back that nomination and say, no way. (laughs) In all seriousness, my dad is a very gracious man. It's one of the reasons I love him. But on this particular situation, he could have been a little bit more gracious, I thought. But I remember that day. And I remember that it wasn't a good day. It's not the kind of day people say, oh, how was your day? And you go, yeah, it wasn't bad. You, You remember it's a bad day. And I remember it was a bad day because of the pain. And if I could describe what the pain was like, it's like putting your hand on a table and giving someone a sledgehammer and saying, smash my hand with it. That's what it feels like when a nail gun punches a three inch nail into your hand. It's not a good feeling. And I remember the pain was instant. It wasn't like, oh, did I get my hand? Uh, straight away I knew I'd got my hand with the nail gun. But I also remember even though the pain was instant, it was also gradual. And so there was an instant impact But then over the next few minutes and hours and days, as it started to throb and swell and bruise and ache, this pain was instant, but it was also gradual. You know, sin is just like that. The impact of sin in this moment in the Garden of Eden was instant like a sledgehammer. It came in and immediately God's very good creation was disrupted by the presence of sin, but it was also gradual, like a, a rock going into the middle of a pond and the ripples going outwards. It was gradual. And as we go through the rest of this series in Genesis chapter 1 to 11, we'll see the ripple effect of sin as it takes root on creation and more um, damagingly as it takes root in our hearts. And we'll kind to see the, sort of the downward spiral of humanity going from where they were prior to the fall to where we are now. And I think it's worth considering this morning. God takes sin and repentance very seriously. And we should as well. God hates sin because it's a rebelling against Him, but He also hates it because He knows how devastating it is in our lives. Sin, some sin has instant impact in our lives. When we say something to someone, it hurts them and relationships broken or we do something that instantly causes pain in our lives. But much of the sin in our lives is gradual as it kind of uh, leads to habits forming in life, as shame and guilt kicks in over days and weeks and months and years. And so sin is something that each of us need to take incredibly seriously, and also repentance, that we come to God regularly to, to ask for his forgiveness for the sins we commit. Maybe this morning you're aware of some of the battles in your own life in this area of sin. And the good news is this, that through a relationship with Jesus, we can be forgiven for all of those things, but he can also help us to conquer the power of sin and the power of death in our lives. So my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit will be working in each of our hearts and kind of highlighting in each of our lives some of those areas that need to change. And my prayer also today is that the Holy Spirit will be working in our hearts to help us conquer those things so that we can be set free to enjoy life but most of all, to live our lives for God. Genesis is a critical book because it shows us who God is, who we are, what purpose we have, but it also pinpoints the original origin of sin there in the Garden of Eden. And so today we're going to look at the impact of sin, but before we do that, we need to really address the elephant in the room, or or should I say the serpent in the garden? Who is this creature? And if garden is paradise, Why is he there? Because it seems like there's one creature in God's creation that doesn't quite fit. And it's the serpent who we're introduced to in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. And it becomes clear in the story that he's able to communicate with Eve and his purpose is to deceive her. And so who is this serpent? And why is this creature in a garden that God said was very good? Well, to answer the first question, I think um, scripture confirms that the, the serpent is Satan or at least a representative of Satan's. And so uh, every scholar will basically agree on one of those two points. This is either Satan embodied or it is a representative of his. But the question is, was Satan part of God's creation? If God's the creator of all things and we see this serpent or Satan who is full of evil and deceit trying to trick these human beings, is it possible that God created Satan? Well, I believe, yes, he did, but I don't believe he was like that when God created him. And so what led to this point? Well, there's many scholars that, that argue about this. But one of the popularly held views is that originally um, Satan was Lucifer and Lucifer was one of God's chief angels. In fact, he was the angel that was kind of in charge of worship. But the problem with Lucifer is that his pride became his downfall because he didn't want to worship God. He actually wanted to be God. And so in Isaiah and Ezekiel, we read passages that kind of imply that that Lucifer actually rebelled against God along with a third of the angels and they were cast out of heaven. Now the important thing really isn't how he got there in the garden. The important thing is to know that he is really here now. So it's important to know that we face a real enemy and his mission is to steal, kill and destroy from our lives. And so we need to be on guard and we need to take a stand against the evil one. But I do think this story of, of how he came to fall from heaven is consistent with what we see in the garden. Because what we see is that Lucifer wanted autonomy from God. He didn't want to be under God's rule and reign. He wanted to be God. And as we look at the account in the garden, this is the exact same thing that he tempts Adam and Eve with, that they could be independent from God, that they could be like their own God. Now, in verse one, it says, "'Now the serpent was more crafty "'than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. "'He said to the woman, "'Did God really say that you must not eat "'from any tree in the garden? "'The woman said to the serpent, "'Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, "'but God did say you must not eat fruit "'from the tree that's in the middle of the garden "'and you must not touch it or you will die.'" You will certainly not die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will become like God. The very same thing Lucifer fell for, he's now tempting Adam and Eve, that they can eat of this fruit on a tree a bit like that and they could become like God. Now there's a couple of interesting things in this part of the story um, about how Satan works and also about how we often respond. Firstly, Satan tempts Eve to question the goodness of God's word. Did God really say? And if he did really say, then he only said it because he's trying to withhold from you. He's lying to you. And he knows if you eat that fruit, you'll become just like him. Do you know that the devil is so predictable? Do you know that he still works exactly the same way today? And he still tempts us at times to question the goodness of God's word. We ask questions, I know all of us have been at this time before where we ask questions like this, is God's word really good? Is it trustworthy? Is it really true? Is it relevant to my life? Does it really mean Was it what it said? Does it actually work in my life today? And so he tempts us to question God's word. And I think if there's one thing the devil would really love to do, it's to get God's word out of our churches. It's to get God's word out of our hearts. It's to get God's word off our lips. And by and large, he's doing a very good job in many churches around and about. That's why it follows Bible teaching and training is one of our DNA core convictions. We want this book to be central in all that we do because we believe it's living and active. We believe it's the word spoken by God. We believe it'll transform our lives, that it's useful for correcting and rebuking and challenging and changing and transforming from the inside out. And so we want to keep it central in our church. We want to keep it in our hearts. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we want it rolling off our tongues. And yet the devil tempts us to question God's word. How do we often respond to this temptation? Well, I think we often respond exactly the same way as Eve did we often tend to elevate God's commands or his strictness at the same time downplaying his goodness. I want you to notice here that the woman said to the serpent, well, you may eat fruit from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. What she says is only partially true. Because when we go back to Genesis chapter 2, it's true that God said not to eat from the tree in the garden, but he didn't say anything about not touching it. And so what's Eve doing? She's focusing in on the strictness of God and at the same time losing track of the fact that she's living in paradise. And everything she has has been given to her by this God who is good. So often the same with us. We elevate God's commands and his strictness, and we forget about how good he is in our lives. For those who have children, you have probably seen this in your own kids. If you go to a playgroup regularly, you will see that there's a million toys there, and uh, there's many toys that kids can play with, but what's the one toy they want? They want the one toy the other kid got. Right? The one toy they can't have is the one toy they want. It's the same at home. You can buy them every toy on the planet and you can say to your kids now, when they're young, you can go and play with any toy in the house, just do not touch the oven. What are they fascinated by? They want the oven. It's like a magnet. It's like, must touch the oven, follow the light, must touch it, must touch it. And they want to touch the oven that you've told them not to touch, even though they have everything else they could possibly imagine. You know, sin's a little bit like this. In verse 6, Eve saw that the fruit tasted good. It looked good. And she thought that it would make her wise. And we've got to be honest, sometimes sin tastes good. Sometimes it looks good. And sometimes we fall for the trap of thinking that somehow if we go ahead with that sin, it's going to make our lives better, although it'll only ever lead to destruction. This is a trap. And it's the same predictable devil setting the same predictable trap. But if I say to my kids, don't touch the oven, does it make me a bad parent? No, it makes me an incredibly good parent because I know that if my kid touches the oven, it's going to cause damage. I know it's hot. I know it's going to cause hurt. And so what I want you to understand today is this, that God's commands and God's goodness actually go hand in hand. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him? to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. God is good And this command given to Adam and Eve in the garden about this tree was there to protect them from the devastating effects of sin, and yet they failed to realize how good God was, and they listened to the devil, and sin entered God's very good creation, and the results have been devastating. So let me outline three of those results of sin from today's text. The first one is this, that sin separates us from God. This is the first and most devastating effect of sin, that it separates us from the God who created us, the same God who created us in his image to enjoy a relationship with him. Now our sin separates us from that God. Now prior to the fall, you'll notice that the relationship between God and the human beings was unblemished. It was innocent mankind in relationship with a holy God. Chapter 2 shows us clear communication between Adam and Eve and God, and and we see the innocence of Adam and Eve meant that there was no guilt, there was no shame, because there was nothing to hide. And I think the pinnacle of this relationship is seen in the last verse of chapter 2, where it says these words, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, let's just contrast that in the garden, in paradise, everything they could ever want, need, dream of, imagine, living in innocence. They're naked. They don't care. It's all hanging out. There's no sense of shame. There's nothing to hide. Now let's compare that now to Genesis 3, just a few verses later. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says these words, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Ah. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Moments earlier, they were living in paradise, in God's presence, in relationship with nothing to hide, complete innocence, complete transparency. But now the man and the woman shame, guilt, and separation, all things that didn't exist just minutes before. Sin has entered God's creation like a sledgehammer, and it's distorted and destroyed relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And in verse 23, we see the end result. It says this, that the Lord Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden. You know, being separated from God is the ultimate tragedy of the human condition. Why? Because God is love. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. God is the ultimate source of joy. He's the ultimate source of hope. He's the ultimate source of love. He's the ultimate source of relationship. And by our sin, we have separated ourselves from that God. It's an absolute tragedy of epic proportions. Sin separates us from God. Secondly, sin separates us from each other we can all acknowledge that relationships in our lives even the best relationships in our lives take constant work i have a great relationship with kim we have a great marriage and i'm happy to say in front of all of you here today that we we never raise our voices in our home it's it's often it's most of the time harmonious uh we, we love each other we get on well with the, with the kim and with the kids and it's a wonderful environment to live in but occasionally some tension does creep into the relationship and the reason it creeps in is because Kim can sometimes be wrong. We wouldn't verbalize that, would we? Although I just did. We wouldn't usually verbalize that. But let's be honest today. That's what we all think, isn't it? If there's a problem in a relationship with your husband or your wife or your kids or your friends, it's not me because I'm perfect. It's them. And it's 100% them and a 0% me. Let's be honest. That's what we think. Where does that attitude come from? It comes from sin. And we see it instantly in the garden. Prior to the fall, there's this beautiful, harmonious, self-sacrificial relationship where the man and the woman live for God and live to serve one another. The man and woman were created by God to uniquely um, complement one one another, to literally fit together relationally, spiritually, sexually. There's no fighting over who does the dishes. There's no fighting over who does what and who doesn't do something else. Um, There is no tension in the relationship whatsoever. But immediately after the fall, it all changes. In verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me gave me the fruit and I ate it. The woman you put here with me gave me the fruit and I ate it. He's the first sexist, isn't he? Uh, Women are the problem. If that flaming woman wasn't here... We'd have no problems. We would have been. We were happy before that happened, and it's her fault. And he's diverting the blame to the woman. So the the Lord, the God, said to the woman, "Who is this? What is this that you have done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. It's not my fault." What do we see here? They're deflecting blame. I don't know whether when she said the devil, whether she was talking about her husband or whether she was talking about the serpent. Uh, I think it was the serpent, though. The devil made me do it. But what we see is that they're deflecting blame. And it's often what we do. Instead of owning our sin in our own lives, instead of turning the mirror on ourselves, we turn it the other way and we reflect it on everyone else. So my question for you today is this. What are the things in our lives that we need to stop blaming others for and start taking responsibility for? What are the things in our lives that we need to stop blaming others for and start taking responsibility for? Not only are they now separated from God, but there's tension with one another. And as the chapter goes on, as it progresses, we see their relationship unravel. In verse 16, God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. No longer is there this harmonious self-sacrificial relationship, but the relationship between the man and the woman has become strained and and stretched and destroyed by the presence of sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin 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 separates us from one another. Sin also distorts God's design. We talked about this last week in regards to work. God's given us work. It should be something that brings us great purpose in life. It should be something that brings us great joy in life. But because of sin, that has now been distorted. It's become a lot more difficult. In verses 17 to 9 in today's passage, it says that work will become a lot harder. There will be thorns and thistles. There will be sweat and painful toil for the man. We have already seen that relationships now broken between God and with each other, that God's design for relationship has been destroyed. And we also see that God says to the woman that she'll now have great pain in childbirth, a constant reminder every time a child is born of the impacts that sin has had on this creation and on our lives. The paradise we were designed to live in has now been lost instantly and gradually to the point where the Apostle Paul says that all creation groans under the impact of sin awaiting its redemption. Now I could finish the message there and we could all go home completely discouraged, sit on the couch, cry for the rest of the week, mope around for the rest of the week and come back next week and I don't want to do that because I'm still on a high from St. Kilda Bedding, Geelong last night and so had to get that in there somewhere and that was the perfect opportunity but I could finish right here. And it would be kind of depressing. Where would the hope be? But one of the things I love about God is this, that in the midst of the darkness, in the darkest times in our lives, where is God? He's right there in the midst of it, bringing hope and life and a light at the end of the tunnel. And I love that about God, that He never leaves us or forsakes us when we are in Christ. He's right there in the midst of it. Mark Deva says that Genesis chapter 3 to 11 is about God's judgment but I've got to say I disagree. I think it's about so much more than that. It's about about our sin, it's about God's judgment, and it's about God's incredible mercy. In fact, the ultimate story of the Bible is exactly that, our sin, God's judgment, God's mercy, our redemption. And This portion of scripture is really a, a mini narrative within a much bigger story. What we see in these chapters is really reflective of what's happening in the whole Bible, sin, judgment, mercy, And it finds its climax in the mercy of God expressed through the sacrifice of his son at the cross of Calvary. This was the the darkest day in history in Eden apart from the cross. And yet on the darkest day, God's light shines through and brings us hope. Because Jesus at the cross died for each of us. And even though we deserve to be punished for our sin, God stepped into the breach And he stood where we deserve to be. And he absorbed the wrath of God. And he paid the penalty of our sin. And he stretches out his hands and he says, in me there is new life. That's incredibly good news. That's the gospel. That Jesus has died for us and in him we can be saved. We can reconnect reconnected with the God who created us. And as we reconnect with God the Father, we will start to find the joy, the love, the purpose we were created for. And not only that, but we can hold on to the promise of God in Christ that when he returns, what has been lost at the fall will be returned. That's incredible because we don't deserve it. And yet God died in our place. Jesus will reverse both the sledgehammer and ripple effect of sin. And at the cross, our relationship with God is restored because the sin obstacle is removed and placed on Christ. Our relationship with each other is restored because Jesus pours his grace and his mercy into our lives. He fills us with the Holy Spirit so that we can go and love and serve and forgive one another. And in Christ, he's also on a redemptive mission. And he invites us to be part of that mission where he is restoring all of creation to the point where paradise will be restored. This is the gospel. And it's announced for the very first time in chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 14 and 15, in what theologians call the protovangelism, which simply means the first gospel. Let me read the verses. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, Jesus, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the gospel being announced in Genesis chapter 3. And what we see is that there is judgment pronounced on the devil. And it points to the truth that the devil will inflict pain on Jesus. He will strike his heel, but Jesus will ultimately defeat him by crushing his head. I want you to notice that one blow is fatal and the other is not. If you've seen um, The Passion of of the Christ, you might remember the scene where Jesus dies on the cross. And you might remember the devil kind of screaming out in victory. Or so he thinks, thinking that he has killed Jesus, the Son of God. Only to see Jesus rise from the dead three days later and to realize that he has been defeated because Jesus has demonstrated through his resurrection that he has power over sin and he even has power over death. The truth is that sin is a terminal disease that separated us from God, that separated us from each other, and it's disordered God's design. Sin ultimately kills us. It's a terminal disease and it only has one cure. And the one cure is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes back into relationship with God the Father except through putting their faith in me. He's the way. He's the life. He's the truth. He's the cure, the remedy of this incredibly destructive disease called sin. On the cross, Jesus conquered the power of sin and death by dying for our sin and rising again. And in a relationship with him, we can now be forgiven and we can have the hope of eternal life also because he's conquered death. The title of today's message is Paradise Lost and Promise Revealed. Genesis 3 is a tragic story because of what was lost at the fall. But there is hope because here in Genesis 3, the gospel appears for the first time and a promise is revealed. Christ is the victor and he is redeeming all things to himself and the sledgehammer and the ripple effects of sin are being reversed, and once again in Him, what has lost will be found. And so what's the application for us today? Well, the application is this, to flee from sin, to repent of your sin, to flee from it, and at the same time to pursue Jesus Christ. He is the hope. He is the cure. He is the life. And so I want to finish by encouraging you today to put your faith in Him, not just for this life, but for all eternity. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we know that life is difficult so often, so many struggles, so much pain, so much tragedy, so much evil. We see it in the world around us. We see it in our own lives. And Lord, we know that your word points to why we are where we are, and it points to sin and the devastating effects of sin. And so Lord, today we want to repent. We want to come before you and say sorry for all of our wrongdoing. At the same time, we want to thank you and and say thank you for what you did at the cross, that you died in our place, and that when we accept what you did for us, we don't have to die for the sins we've committed, but we can have the hope of eternal life in you. It's the most incredible thing. It's what makes Christianity so wonderful. It makes the gospel so powerful. And so today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to leave this place inspired and encouraged by your word, and inspired and encouraged to live for you, because we've been set free from the sin that destroys our lives. And so we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.